right, if you have your Bible, open to the book of Malachi. Book of Malachi, if you're unfamiliar where that's located, you probably know where the book of Matthew is. It's the one that comes just before Matthew. So it's the last book of the Old Testament, and we're going to be spending some time in the book of Malachi. <clears throat> and uh, the relevance of this book, I think, is um, pretty tremendous to the things in which we're facing, and also into how we have kind of started today's service with the songs which we've been singing, uh, the time of prayer that we've had so far, all of this flows into really the, the idea that I think is here in verses 1 through 5 of Malachi into how I've titled this as God's providential love. And so the, the song which we sang just a few minutes ago uh, about uh, God's love being a firm foundation well, this, I think, answers why that is. Why is his love a firm foundation? Why is it that we sing of his love, of his grace? Why can we have confidence in those things? Well, it comes down to, really, I think, this principle of God's providential love. And just as we've even prayed about uh, not worrying about things and the sovereignty of God over all things, how this all, all plays out and works out, and the faith in which we should have the book of Malachi is addressing all of these kinds of things. So if you do have your Bible there, we're going to get there in just a moment. I've got to give you a little bit of backstory. So we're all kind of on the same page. We all have kind of have a same, similar understanding of what has happened here in Malachi. Some backstory that's important is, first of all, his name. His name means messenger or my messenger. There's some debate among scholars whether or not Malachi was actually his name or this was just a title in which he carried. Now, Either way, Malachi fulfills that role. As message Ezra and Nehemiah, you're probably more familiar with Nehemiah and Ezra than you are maybe with Malachi. This is around 450 to 430 B.C. So uh, 450 years, 430 years before Christ comes on the scene. This is likely about 100 years after the return from Babylon out of Persia as Israelites have come back, um, and Nehemiah, Ezra, those storylines follow the same kind of pattern here uh, that Malachi is dealing with. So it's about 100 years after they've returned back into the land, back to Jerusalem, and Malachi writes this book. Now, this book does include prophecy, and prophecy, prophecy of several things. One of those being the forerunner to the Messiah is being prophesied about, and also the Messiah is being prophesied in the book of Malachi. Now the scene for this book is likely around the same time frame as Nehemiah as he revisits Persia, as he goes back to the king. And the people of Judah at this time, they're under the rule of the Persians. They are not their own sovereign nation. They are under the rule of the Persians at this same time. So they're, uh, there's around 50,000-ish exiles that have come back out of Babylon, out of Persia, back into Judah, into Jerusalem, and Nehemiah and Ezra, they are leaders in this time frame. So during that time, Ezra and Nehemiah, there was the rebuilding of the temple, there was also the walls of Jerusalem being rebuilt, there was also a reestablishing of the Torah, or God's word, um, as well as the ceremonies and sacrifices that God had required of his people. <clears throat> but it wasn't long until these people, including the priests, began to drift away from these things that had been reestablished and repracticed and, and put back in place again. It wasn't long, again, only a hundred years, where Malachi is now writing, condemning some of the same practices that got Israel there in the first place of being captured. So the and corrupt priesthood, abuse, and the sacrificial observances, and this goes back to the priest. Also, the neglect of the tithe in the nation. There are mixed marriages, there is divorce, there's economic injustices, and this is all being presented to an apathetic people. Now, there would be about 400 years between Malachi and Matthew and there's 400 years of silence that there is from God. I like to tell people that their Bible that they have, that blank page or pages that they have between Old and New Testament is a great representation of how much God spoke to Israel. He didn't say anything. He was quiet right after this prophet, Malachi's words, 
as he's proclaiming the coming of the Messiah, the coming of this forerunner, but also condemning the practice of these people, this should be as a resounding gong to the people of Israel that they need to repent. They need to turn from their sin. They need to go to God. And all of this is going to be echoing through the centuries for 400 years. That's a long time, isn't it? 400 years of echoing the same word, the same message, waiting until another prophet comes. And this other prophet that we, we know is coming is John the Baptist. We know that he's this one that is promised, and Malachi promises one that's going to come in Malachi 4, 5, where he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, how do we know that it's John the Baptist? Well, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, Jesus tells us that John the Baptist is that one. He says, he is Elijah who is to come. So there's, there should be no confusion for us on this side of things. Understand that John the Baptist was this one that Malachi is prophesying to be the forerunner to the Messiah. So what is also established here with that is that Jesus is re referring to John the Baptist being the forerunner or the prophet that's to come before the Messiah is given a timeline for us of who potentially could be the Messiah. If the prophet is to come right before the Messiah, then who, who in history could it be? This is a great question that we could ask those of other religions and, and press on that. If Jesus is, is a prophet, if he is a good teacher, then he cannot lie. He cannot tell a lie such as this as saying, well, John the Baptist was this one, but Eh, that Messiah never showed up. That just couldn't be the case. So imagine, imagine yourself in a nation that has had men through its history that God has given to be a prophet. And this has happened again and again through history and that God is speaking through these prophets to the nation that you've been a part of. But then all of a sudden, this revelation from God just ceases. It just stops. Now, we don't know if Malachi or even the people really realized that God was going to kind of turn the valve completely off on them. But I think as Malachi is speaking and these people are hearing this, there should be a little bit of sadness, at least, in their heart. A little worrisome uh, uh, state of their heart hearing that, hey, there's not going to be another prophet until this other is going to come. Now, maybe there wasn't sadness because they thought, well, surely it's just going to be, you know, a couple days, weeks months, years, maybe decades, maybe centuries, and this is what happened. Centuries passed. God did not speak. This is all happening because of the apathy and the hard-heartedness of these people, and God is silent to them. Now, the overarching message of Malachi is God's steadfast love. God's steadfast love. But what also is included in the message of Malachi is not just a love message, it's not just, you know, butterflies and rainbows and everything's going to be great and, you know, you're in the promised land, you're just milk and honey, right? The other message that's included with this is repent or be judged. God's judgment, I think, includes the silence to his people. And God's judgment of sin reveals his great love for his people. A, a loving God must hate sin. He must hate sin. Because sin leads to death and destruction. Therefore, he must hate what is destroying his covenant people in order for him to be a truly loving God. So we must understand that God does hate. This is, an, this is something true about who he is and, and what he does. He does have a hatred and it is toward sin. And his hatred for sin is going to be revealed even through this book. And even in these first five verses that we are going to look at. Now, through, throughout this short little prophecy, we hear again and again the importance of covenant relationship between God and his people with Israel. And so now for us, on this side of things, this side of the cross, this is applicable for us as well. We first see that God has chosen the people of Israel as his covenant people out of all the nations of the earth, out of all the peoples of the earth. And in doing this, he is calling them to be his representative to the rest of the world, to the rest of the nations. And we also see throughout this book that the people 
Even though they've been chosen by God, they have been elected by God for this purpose. They're his covenant people. They do not act that way. And this is a major, major problem. Now, what we will see in our text this morning is God's providential love. And I'll give some more explanation of what that means. But I want to take you to the passage that we're going to look at today, 1 through 5. And then we'll kind of walk through some of these passages. Look at Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I laid waste his hill country. We will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says. They may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now, back in verse 1, uh, the ESV translation uses the word oracle that is here. You might have a different word that's, that's used in translation, but it's the Hebrew word of masa. Masa. Now, this means a burden or a load. So, Malachi is carrying a burden, and this burden is coming from God. It's a burden for his people and to his people. It is something heavy and weighty that they need to hear, they need to receive, and they need to repent of. Now, the office of a prophet was not something that, you know, likely your, your high school guidance counselor is directing you toward, um, you know, telling you stories of Jeremiah and wonderful things that happened to him. It's probably not something that a lot of people aspired to be. It, it was a calling, much like being a pastor or an elder, with the exception of being a, a pastor or elder as one that should have a passion for that kind of work, that kind of service. A prophet, on the other hand, was kind of just thrust into it, thrown into it. And the prophet, he would often more often than not, would bring bad news. Bad news to the people. And usually that's connected to the need for repentance. And Malachi, he is the 12th of the minor prophets. Do you think that's coincidence? No. He's the 12th of the minor prophets of the Old Testament, the last and final prophet that is organized in your Bible that you have. This is all uh, for reason and for purpose and for emphasis. Again, following Malachi is that silence. This burden that he's going to bring to the people of Jerusalem, it is, it's heavy, it's weighty. And so if you will imagine with me the amount of discomfort in which this prophet has as he's giving this message, as any prophet would have, giving this message to the people in the first couple of verses of Malachi, the response. So imagine his discomfort as he has this heavy weight, this heavy load that he's going to share with the people of Israel, knowing likely that there will be rejection now this message was not one that was from malachi but from god correct it was god's word it was god's load that he had given to malachi to bring to the people of jerusalem of israel now it is his authority that malachi is representing it is god who is speaking through malachi and malachi is simply the messenger now let me ask you this question is it loving to expose someone's sin? Because this is what Malachi is going to do. He's going to uncover the sin of the people. But again, it's not Malachi that's doing it. It is God that is doing it. Now, most of the time, people don't think that it is a sinful thing for you to expose someone's sin. Even culturally, a lot of times it's not thought that way. But I do think a lot of lost people do think it is unloving to uncover someone's sin. Now that leads into another question that we need to ask ourselves about this book and really any kind of book that we read from the Bible, any passage we read. And that is the question of how are you going to handle the correction, the discipline that God is going to give you from this book? As we've read this morning out of Hebrews 12, 5 and 6, it says, And uh, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and, cha and chastens every son whom he receives. Verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So how someone responds to correction reveals the character 
of the individual. How are you going to review into the practical and personal application of this book? How are you going to handle that? Well, we need to determine that right on the front end of this, of how am I going to respond to these things in this book that are going to be uncovered or pointing out maybe a sinful practice, sinful uh, um, pattern of my life. How am I going to listen to this word? What is going to be my approach to the Bible? Because your approach to the Bible, to God's word, to the message, this load of truth, it's going to determine how you walk away from this, how you take away things from this. Either you will approach the Bible, you will approach God's word with humility, or you will approach it with a prideful heart. And we see here in Malachi, the people approach God with a very prideful heart. So please, make your decision today. Make your decision now as to how you're going to receive this book. How are you going to receive this weight that is going to be given to us? But with this weight, there's also some good news with it. There's promise with this. In the humble of heart, they will feel the heavy weight of this book, but then cling to the promises of the book as well. This is how we should respond to this truth. I want to take you to the next two verses. Verse 2 and 3. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If, uh, well, I guess it's the end of verse 3. Uh, so here in verses 2 and 3, God starts his rebuke of the people. He's reminding them of who they are and then gives them a short history lesson to help them remember what we see here is God's providential love throughout history. And this is why he's telling them the story. Now that word providence, it's an important one for us to understand. It is not one that you're going to find written into your Bible. It is not a Bible term that will be in the back of the book there. important concept that we need to understand. When we talk about the providence of God, we are referring to the purposeful sovereignty of God. The purposeful sovereignty of God. Now, sovereignty is another word that's important that you need to understand. Sovereignty meaning that God has the right and authority to do, to do whatever he desires to do. He is sovereign over all things. So when we think about the providence of God, we must include the sovereignty of God. But we, we must think of God's omnipotence or all-powerfulness in the context of his purposes. So the power of God, the, the all-consuming power of who he is, must be considered in the realm of his purpose, his desire, his will. And if we separate those two things or try to degrade those in some way, all things start to collapse. If you would like to go deeper into the omnipotence of God, we'll be talking about this in the attributes of God on Sunday afternoons. So be here at 4 o'clock. Another plug, shamelessly. Um, when God acts, he acts with purpose. He acts with a plan. He acts with a desire. And the scriptures teach us what about God's plan, about God's purpose? It's good. It's good. Often we don't look at our circumstance or what God's plan is currently for us as a good thing. A lot of times we've distorted that outlook because we feel it's really bad. It's not good. But the truth is, God's purpose, his plan is good. Now what we're going to see here is that God is reminding Israel of his grace before he reminds them of his law. And this is a great way for us as we start to approach others and sharing the gospel with them, that we get in our heart, first of all, the grace that has been shown to us. And this is why, why I think Malachi started this way. And I think this is a great place for us to start as we... It starts with see the good news of God's grace. Now, this is appropriate for how we should think, how we should, we should desire to interact with others and see them come to this good news of the Savior. I think all of us would understand that our existence that we have today, it is all based upon the grace of God. You are here, breathing, your heart beating, your brain functioning, hopefully, that... It is the grace of God of why this is, this is taking place. I think we could go back to Genesis. 
we could see God's, God's creativity, God's purpose, his plan of, of why all things are here. And when we go back to Genesis, it teaches us that God could have rightly and justly wiped us out after we sin. But he did not. And in that act of mercy, in that act of grace, he, he allowed us to survive. He allowed us to be preserved. And in that same act of mercy and of grace, he promised something. Genesis 3.15 he promised one that would come to set us free from our worst enemy. And who is the worst enemy we have? Ourselves. To free us from our sin. We needed a Savior. A Savior to redeem us. And so God had a purpose. He had a purpose for all things. And he has had a purpose for all things. And this was before there was anything. Now, the question is, well, what is the purpose of all things? Hopefully you can answer that. If not, let me help you this morning. Let me give you just uh, four verses of Scripture that I think that are helpful in us understanding what is the purpose of all things. Uh, Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. All things, all the things that we're seeing, all the things that are revealed to us, the heavens declare what? The glory. Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his, what's the word? Glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. So there's, there's a moving from the heavens and all these things, narrowing things down to the earth. And then Isaiah 43, 6 and 7 says, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my Glory, whom I formed and made. What is the purpose for all things? The glory of God. Why do you exist? Why are you here today? Why are you breathing? Why are you still functioning, or at least partially? Because of the glory of God. All things exist for His glory. Not that God needs something or anyone to be more glorious don't have that idea, that he needed to create because he was lonely or he, he, he lacked something and he needed to gain glory for himself. No, that is not true. He was already as glorious as any being could be. But out of the abundance of God's character, he creates all things and all things have the same purpose. And what is that purpose? Once again, his glory, the glory of God. Another word that would help us understand glory is this word honor. Honor. So whenever you hear glory, don't think of the movie. Think of, think of honor to God. God should be honored. And so what is the purpose of all things being created? What is your purpose? Why are we here? Why, why did all these things happen through history? Why are the stars in the sky that we will never explore, we will never know anything about for his glory? In verse 2, God declares his love for these people. But Israel then questions. They say, how have you loved us? Sing about that. And, you know, we sing the song, Jesus loves me, this I know. Like, but I don't, I don't think that. I really don't believe that. I really don't feel that. Well, this is a great message for you to hear today, isn't it? This is really good that you're here today, and it seems to be a providential moment for you, that you're here hearing this specific message from this specific passage. They question God's love, and maybe you're doing the same thing. You are questioning whether or not he really loves you because of what's happened to you, or what is happening, or what you think is going to happen. I desire for you, for all of us, to be encouraged by this passage because of the truth that is here for us as believers. These people of Israel, they had a truth right in front of them. They are confronted with that truth, and they rejected it. Israel has had a pretty terrible history of enslavement, of captivities, of massacres. They've had a pretty awful history, but... They look at that history, and they look at other things that are happening, and they, they begin to question God's love. Does he really love us? They question because maybe the things that have happened, or 
maybe the current circumstance that they find themselves in. And because of this questioning, they have rejected God's word. They've become disobedient and apathetic toward him. Maybe they think that God doesn't love them because of the current state of Israel. Maybe because of, uh, of the things that are happening in their nation, in their neighborhood, and they're like, I, I just don't think God loves us. I don't think God's really here. And maybe you have those same thoughts. They are not a sovereign nation at this point. They are under the control of Persia. They will remain under the control of other nations. They have witnessed so many injustices in their society. They, they, they see the corruption around them and at the top level. And they think, God must not love us. Their current circumstance seems, whose perspective is this from? Theirs. So how does God prove his love to them? Well, he gives them a very short history lesson. He just uses a very short history of Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. He says this, yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Now the word, the words here, love and hate, they need to be understood in the context of covenantal language and into this idea of being chosen or not chosen. God chose to fulfill his covenant that he made with Abraham, and he chose to fulfill this covenant through Jacob and not Esau. Now you remember the story of Jacob and Esau, right? Or do we need to go back and read all of that? I'll do it. Don't make me. Shake your head, please. Okay. So back in the book of Genesis, we're just going to go there anyways. Genesis 25. You did this to yourself. Um, Genesis 25, verse 23. This is only one verse. It was planned, okay? Genesis 25, 23. We hear the story of the twins, Jacob and Esau. And the Lord says this to Rebekah. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So the Lord tells Rebekah that he has chosen the younger to be the one of covenant and of blessing instead of the older one. Now why would this reminder of the heritage of the people of Israel be so impactful to them? Or at least it should be impactful to them. Because Jacob wasn't the oldest. Esau was. And being the firstborn of the twins gave him certain rights of his birthright and of the blessing that should come from his father to him. But what the scriptures teach us and show us and put in front of us before the story actually even happens is that Esau, he, he then gives up his birthright like it was promised it would happen. He gives this up to Jacob and then Jacob later then conned his father into giving him the blessing over Esau. So what we learn and what God wants God's grace is not given to those given to who deserve it. His grace is not given to those who seem to deserve it. God's grace is not contingent upon human merit or perceived righteousness. Because from the perspective of man and of culture at that time, who should have got the, the right blessing? Who should have got the birthright? Who should have been the chosen one? Esau. But God said, that will not be the case. I will make my covenant and fulfill my covenant promise with Abraham through Jacob, not Esau. Now, if this were the case, that God's grace was contingent upon human merit or perceived righteousness, then we have a major, major problem. We do. Because in Romans chapter 3, what does Paul say? Verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. Nobody is righteous before God, so how could we merit something or even have a perceived idea of righteousness that we think we, we should deserve something? We, we've earned something. Paul says no one is righteous. So we have a major problem. And honestly, if we did merit something, then it wouldn't be grace and it wouldn't be mercy. When we look back at Genesis 25, that verse that I read just a second ago, where God is speaking about these two men before they were born, we, we start to get, a, I think, a better insight into what God was talking about in Malachi 1. And so let me just share that with you again. Let me put that back in front of you. Genesis 25, 23, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So with that idea in mind, and this, 
this word given to Rebecca as she's pregnant with these two twins, that helps us understand why Paul writes this in Romans 9, verses 10 through 13. He says, And not only so, but all born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, the, the only reason why Israel was God's chosen people is because of God's choosing of them. Why are they his people? Because he chose to make them his people. Did they deserve to be chosen by God? You can respond. No. No, they did not. Did they earn God's favor by their behavior or by their actions? No. So why were they chosen by God? Why did he decide to make a covenant with them, with Jacob specifically? Because he wanted to. Because he desired to. Because he willed it, because he planned it, because he purposed it. That's why. You can use different words there, but it has to come to this truth that God did it. He wanted to. It was out of his freedom that he chose to do this. Let me take you back farther into the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Go ahead and turn there. Chapter, chapter 7, verses 6 through 11. I want us to look at this. And this talks about God choosing these people and why he did it. It's on page 142 if you have that uh, hardback Bible. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. And know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to the face of those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay to him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and statutes and the rules that I command you today. There was nothing, according to this passage, that the people did in order for God to choose them. It was God's decision to choose them. And was, what was the determining factor in God's choosing of them? If you look there at verse 8, God's love. It was God's love of why he decided to do this. And also what we see here in verses 8 and 9 is the promises of God. Why is he maintaining covenant with these people that will not maintain covenant with him? Because he doesn't change. Because he is always good. And this has always been his plan. He chose these people. So essentially the answer as to why God chose them is God. I know it's a complicated answer. Why does he choose them? Because of who he is. It wasn't because of what they did. This is all an act of grace. And they are experiencing God's love, not based on their performance or their position or their power, but upon one thing, and that is the prerogative of God. This is why God starts out saying, I have loved you. And it's based upon his prerogative, not upon their performance. And so this is really good news for us as we think about this, because your, your status with God is not contingent upon your performance or your position or your power or your parents. It is based upon the prerogative of God that he has chosen to love. Now, if you look at verses 3 and 4, back in Malachi chapter 1, God uses the people of Edom as an example the people of Israel, they are to be a different people. They're a holy people. They are God's chosen, covenantial people, but not the people of Edom. And this is the point God makes with them here in verses 3 and 4. Let's read those again. 
But Esau I have hated, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild this, the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Now in verse 3, it uses this word hated. Hated in reference to Esau. Now, you might be tempted to think that uh, this word hated doesn't actually mean hated, but it just means loved less. Well, if we just keep reading the rest of verse 3 into verse 4, what is the context of this word? What does it actually mean? Well, we see that God is describing his active work against Esau and his descendants of Edom. And he ends with saying in verse 4, "...the people with whom the Lord is angry forever." So the interaction that God has with Esau and with Edom is not passivity toward them of just loving them less. But as you read verses 3 and 4, this is active work against them. They're going to rebuild. I won't let them. Now, God is making this contrast for his people, for the blessed people of Israel to see. Look at Edom. Look at these people. They should remember they should remember God's love, and they, they've forgotten it. Now, maybe you remember that Jacob's name, it was changed from Jacob to Israel. And the people of Edom, they are the descendants of Esau. These people of Israel, those in which God has, has been preserving and keeping and changing throughout centuries, He's reminding them of the roots of their heritage and comparing that to the heritage of Esau and the destruction. Rescued out of captivity, but look at the other nation. Look at Edom. He, he points out this other nation, this nation that he ruins, he destroys. These two nations that are represented here, they are to give clarity as to what it looks like to be ones that are blessed of God and those that are rejected by God. These Edomites, they were ones that were forced out of their land during this whole time period, this restoration back into the land. They were forced out of their land. They then left the land uninhabited. It, it was a, a desolate land. Also, history tells us that the Edomite people eventually came to be non-existent, which is strange because Israel, Israel had been taken captive so many times with different kingdoms and different influences, but they even remain today as a nation. How? Because of God's covenant, because of God's promise, because of God's providential love. Edom, historically, they had been part of the reason why Israel ended up in captivity in Babylon. And now the Edomites are no more. They've been destroyed. They're gone. They're not existent. Their land doesn't, doesn't inhabit anybody. And so God is saying, look, Israel, I have loved you. Look at how you're still here, and they're gone. Israel carries on. They've been preserved. They went into captivity. They've been brought back. This has happened again and again. There, there's a salvation that's been brought to them. And one that's even being promised here in Malachi again. There's a remnant that God has preserved again and again through history. And this is why they need to remember how I have loved you. God, that they should have really paid attention to was the fact that Edom, they were kind of the, the personification of pridefulness, of self-centeredness, of foolish living. But we learn through the book of Malachi that the people of God's promise started to act just like those people. The Edomites, they were people that they couldn't see beyond their noses. Think back to Esau as all he could do was, you know, fall into the home and say, oh, I'm going to die if I don't have something to eat. And Jacob's like, oh, conveniently, I have this stew. I need a birthright. So the, the people that come from Esau are so short-sighted. They are so prideful, self-centered, only focused on themselves. They live foolishly and they do not think of the ramifications of their future choices of their choices into the future this is something that the people of israel should have known they should have seen now let me press press on that idea for a moment with you do you act this way 
Do you react or do you respond? Let me explain the difference. Reacting is acting upon the flesh's urging. Flesh urges you to do something, so you do it. Saying or doing something quickly because it makes you feel better. Like maybe when somebody says something to you, so you give them a quick remark back, you know, some sarcastic remark or something, right? And you just snap back at them. It's not really thinking about the outcome of what you've said or the damage that you could do or, or the ramifications, maybe broader, of what you've just done or said. It's simply just making yourself feel better in the moment. This is very different than responding. Responding is giving forethought as to how your actions or your words are going to impact that person or persons in the future. Responding. What it is, it's exercising patience and grace. The Israelites should have been a people that responded to God appropriately. But here in verse 2, we see that their response to God is more reactionary. So let me ask you the question, are you a reactor reactor that's going to build and then blow up and then kill everybody? Or are you a responder, one that's thinking about other people, planning your thoughts, planning your actions, thinking ahead, giving forethought into, if I do this or say this, how is this going to help or hurt? There's a big difference there. Israel, they were acting just like the people that were destroyed. They were not acting like people of blessing, but people that had been cursed. Israel had this shining example of what not to be like, but they acted just like them. The greatest display of God's sovereign and providential love is found in Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ declares to us God's sovereign and redeeming love. It is only through Jesus that the wicked men such as us, could be cleansed from sin and then be declared righteous before God? No longer headed for destruction, no longer destined for eternal damnation, but we are now changed, transformed, destined for eternal blessing. No longer being the people of Edom, but we've been brought out of that into a new relationship with God and being established as a covenantal people with God. It's only through the work of Jesus Christ that people could be adopted out of a family of Satan into the family of God. This is the rescue that we have as Christians, and this is why we we should never have a response to God of, how have you loved me? You've been saved. You've been redeemed. The wicked, such as us, can now be shown mercy because of Christ. Because of the payment that was made on our behalf. Because of the death that was, that was laid, the life that was laid down in death on the cross by Jesus Christ and through his resurrection. It is not by being physically born into the parents or having the right parents or the right country or right anything. It's because of God's providential love and grace. Let me ask you. What input did Jacob have as a child to be the child of promise? Nothing. That's the answer. If you said something else, you were wrong. What did Jacob accomplish in order to be blessed? Nothing. When did the blessing come? When did the promise come? Before he did anything. So let me ask you this question. What input did you have when you were brought into this world physically? That's a weird question, I know. If you think too long about that, it gets awkward. What input did you have to be brought into this world? The answer is nothing. You, you showed up. I know whenever, whenever people are going to have a baby and you know, you're standing there, I've never had a baby, by the way, um, but one of my wife has. Uh, standing there, and people are like, oh, you know, you know, she's just gigantic. That's how big she gets. She's huge. Um, she's not here, so I can say this thing. Um, <clears throat> you know what she looks like, so it's fine. Um, but people are like, oh, you know, so you're like nine months pregnant. You know, he's going to come whenever he's ready. No, he won't. It has nothing to do with him. Like, in, in what birth is, and it's a miraculous thing. It's an amazing thing that God does physically and spiritually. 
I had no input into my birth into this world. And, and this is the same thing about God choosing you or choosing me to be his covenant people. It was not based upon us. His choosing was based upon his grace and his love. It's who he is. He's God. It's his prerogative. Now this is all, all of that idea, all of that understanding of his providential love for us. Most, or for you to think that, yeah, I've accomplished something. God is saying here, I did something. I deserve, I merited all of what God is saying here in the first five verses is saying, Israel, it is not because of you. I did it. I loved you. And now you're saying, how have you loved us? These people, these people, they should understand, they should know, they should be humble enough to recognize that God is the reason why they're there. Why do they have walls being rebuilt? Why do they have a temple again? And why does Edom not? Because of God's providential love. It's not about entitlement, it's not about merit but only about God's great grace and his providential love toward you. So how should we respond to that kind of love? We have an answer to this. Look at verse 5. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. We should praise God for loving us in spite of us. We should make his name great among the nations like Israel was supposed to be doing. There should be a deep appreciation of God's grace, of God's love, and how he has preserved us even now, even as we sit here now, but also how he is preserving us in eternity. And being reminded of God's grace should bring about praise and adoration for God. And, and we should say glory to God or honor to God isn't that why we've been created? To give him glory. Isn't that the purpose of all things is to give him glory, to give him honor? So let us not forget the massive amount of grace that we have been shown, just like the Israelites. Let us not ever be a people that says, uh, how have you loved us? They had not earned favor from God. They had not been so of at time with God that he then blessed them. It wasn't because they read so many pages of their Bible or, or got so many check marks, you know, in children's church or whatever. It was because of who God is. If we look at this passage again, look at how it starts. It starts with God's love, verse, verse 2. God loves them. Then how does it end? Verse 5. God's greatness. Why are they his people? Because he loved them and because he's great. Why are you God's people? Because he loved you and he's great. He hasn't changed. Why have you experienced this kind of love? Why have you experienced these kinds of things? Because of his providential, purposeful, planful, desired, willed love for you. Now notice also in verse 5 how this ends. He says, beyond the border of Israel. So when you see these things, this is what you're going to say. You're saying, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now this is important because this statement, it proves that God is not limited in his authority, or we could say in his sovereignty. There's no borders that restrict him like the walls of Jerusalem that were, being, that were built up by Nehemiah and say, well, you know, God's sovereign over, you know, this city these walls, this is how God shows his sovereignty. This is how God shows his providence. No, with this statement from God, he's saying, my greatness goes beyond any border, any wall, any river, any boundary. There's nothing that is going to stop his power. There's nothing that is going to restrict his plan. No nation can stop his purpose. No person can stop his plan. His greatness goes beyond borders. God's love, God's love, his providential love, it is unconditional or to earn his love. So maybe you're just not killing it right now with being a Christian. Maybe, maybe you're just not doing well at all. Understand this truth. 
that your lack of or failures in does not influence his love for you. That's good news. That is fantastic news for us. That even when we act like some jack wagon Israelite that says, oh, yeah, you haven't really loved me. Look at Edom. Look at Edom. This is the truth for us. Look at Edom. How has he loved you? You're still here, and he promises to keep you there. We're going to hear some really hard things in this book. We're going to hear some things that are directed right at the Israelites, but man, they come right back in our face too. Right back in our day. Things that we as individuals, we as a church, we as a nation are struggling with. And all of what God is going to say, all of what he is going to say starts with verse 2. I have loved you. So it's not coming from some sort of evil dictator, but from a gracious God. How are we going to receive these things? How are we going to hear these things? God does all things, and we see this here in these five verses. He does all things after the counsel of his perfect and providential will. This is why you're here. Let me end with just three questions I want you to reflect on. And again, as, as we have this time every week, we want you to have opportunity to pray where you're at. Pray with somebody. Come and pray at the front if you want. If you want to talk about these things later with, um, with myself or with one of the other elders, like we invite that for you uh, to do that. Let me give you these three questions to just spend just a moment praying through. First of all, do you know this God? Do you know this God that says, I have loved you? Or do you have some distorted view of God and you've been worshiping some other God because as Zeus where he's ready to just throw some bolt of lightning down upon you and crush you because, well, I just didn't do the right thing today. Maybe you don't really know this God. Second question, have you been accusing God of not loving you? Have you been acting like an Edomite instead of an Israelite? Have you been accusing God of not loving you? When in fact, oh, he has. And the third question is to bring about a realization of this. How has God revealed his love for you? How has he shown this to you? Would you spend just a few moments, just, again, where you're at, or if you want to come to the front and pray, just spend some time praying through and thinking through how God has shown his providential love for you.